Not because we are attempting to earn something on our behalf, but because of what He alone could accomplish, would accomplish, and will accomplish for those who believe. Today we're looking at Jesus, the true and better. And we're looking in the book of Hebrews that presents this overarching theme, this case, this study of, of what it means to know Him and follow Him and what it means to, to trust in Him even though the days and the time do not always make sense. Jesus is our central study foundation in these times. That when we find Jesus, we find the One who is matchless. There is no comparison. There is no one at a level where Jesus is. And that when we have Jesus, we have everything. There's no need to add anything to Jesus. Jesus plus nothing still equals everything. That in Jesus is the perfect one who is our needed mediator, our needed perfect sacrifice, and our needed perfect Savior. And today we're going to be looking at that theme, and particularly in the book of Hebrews, the ninth chapter of the New Testament. And, and I would invite you to turn there in your copy of God's Word, or turn on your copy of God's Word, should you be using a, a tablet or a smartphone or that kind of thing. Um, and we are being looking here together in the ninth chapter, and we're going to read five verses, verses 24 through 28. And we're going to be reading this, and as we read this, I I pray, my prayer is that you would recognize not only the gravity of the words, but the gravity of the the source who gave them to us. That these are not just ancient words, these are words that came, came from the ancient one, the holy one, the eternal one, and they have been preserved for us today so that we might know him. So would you stand in honor of the reading of God's Word, but more importantly, in the honor of reading, of, of, of knowing God, of what He has done. This is the 24th verse. If you're following along in, in one of the black Bibles, by the way, it's one, page 1066. You can certainly turn there. And as I always say before, if you need a Bible that is readable and faithful, we, we want to gift that one to you in the pews, so take that home. But it will also be on the screen. But this is the word of the Lord given to us, as the Bible says, inspired by the Holy Spirit. It says in the 24th verse of chapter 9 in Hebrews, For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with hands, only a model of the true one, but into heaven itself, so that he might now appear in the presence of God for us, He did not do this to offer Himself many times as the high priest enters the sanctuary yearly with the blood of another. Otherwise, He would have had to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. But now, He has appeared one time at the end of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of Himself. And just as it is appointed for people to die once and after this judgment, so also Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for Him. Let us pray. 
Lord God, we have read from your word today. May you be honored. May you be honored. And may you have your way as your word that is given to us is inspired. It is inerrant. It is infallible. And it illuminates our eyes, our ears, our hearts so that we may know you. We may grow with you. And I pray that it's exactly what takes place in this worship gathering today. That of any next step, it would be that we draw closer to you. And that you would reveal that is our greatest need to be near you, the living God. Show us what that means today. In Jesus' holy name, amen. You may be seated. So each week, when we come together and, and we read God's Word in the worship gathering, which is a very important part of the worship gathering, that corporately, faithfully, regularly, we would gather to know God through the, learn, through the, through the proclamation of His Word and through the praise of His name. That is a, a vital aspect of the Christian life. And as we connect with one another in community to see what this means, and as we grow as disciples to become and be shaped by the Word, and as we are sent out to serve Him, we, we always ask these questions. What was it that was just said? Because you can't learn the Bible without reading the Bible. You can hear about theories of the Bible. You can hear about theories about theology. You can hear about theories of philosophy. Theories of worldview, but you cannot learn the Bible until you hear the Bible. It's a pretty simple thing. I have a tendency to understand that I, I just can't learn science by not studying science. I have to actively participate in it. So if there is a longing for you to know what this says and what this means, it is important that you listen and find out what it says. Secondly, is, is that part of the meaning. After it is proclaimed, after it is read and heard and received, we have to ask, what does it mean? That we don't just take this as something that dropped out of a cloud yesterday, but something that God gave in specific times and ways and places. You see, the Bible is a complete book. It is a threaded, woven narrative of history of what God has done to show who He is and and, and what it means to know Him, and, and what it means to hear from Him, and see what He's done. It is that narrative of, of one book, but it is also 66 books. 39 collected in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. And each of them given in a specific time and point in history to deal with a specific scenario. And that scenario wasn't like, oh, just a couple weeks later, this was added. No, it was years, and centuries, and over a millennia. The Bible was written over a period of 1,500 years by 40 different authors in three different continents speaking three different languages. And yet it's seamless together. So we need to see, all right, what is, is this, this particular area, especially when we look at Hebrews, what is it meaning to us? In the book of Hebrews, you have this writer who is writing to the church and he's writing to those of true faith who have followed Jesus but have come under severe conflict and persecution. And there's an uncertainty in the air. The, the empire that, that is, the time, is, is warring against the faith. And so, outing yourself as a follower of Jesus is not popular in a cultural scenario by the people that have power. Or at least a limited power. And then there's conflict in the home front because many of these were Hebrews. And the designation that, that you saw 
and believed and trusted that, that the promises of the Old Testament, this promise that, that there is one day going to be a lawgiver, a prophet, a priest, a king, a messiah, a redeemer, a savior, a holy one, the one who is very God, a very God, and also fully man, that one day He was coming and, and you have come to the conclusion that based on all those promises, Jesus is that person. For many of the Jewish faith, the Hebrew faith, that was simply irredeemable. You just couldn't come back from that. You either renounced it and, and, would, and totally denied it and you could come back in or you were shunned. You were pushed away. Now, imagine putting yourself in that place. This is, this is why we need to know the meaning. You may know what it's like to put yourself in that place. You may be in a place where it is not culturally appropriate to out yourself as a convicted follower of Jesus. That may be the scenario of your life. Maybe that's your neighborhood or your family or your workplace or your uh, place of education. It might even be if you are even in our own nation uh, in a place of the government that it's not a good thing to do if you want to excel in your status. Or maybe it's the other way around. Maybe it is the home front. Where the idea of being a follower of Jesus just puts you at as a, as a mark, as a person destined to be just persecuted, if you will. Maybe not by your life, but maybe just your education level, your thought level is lessened in the eyes of others because of this. And they put on a practical, pragmatic type of shunning. This is the scenario that with this letter was written. And as we see the meaning, then we begin seeing the applications of our life. All of us are seeing this, this mountain of meaning and, and then we're looking at it as how it, how it imprints itself in our life. And we say, okay, I see the meaning that was given to them and now I see the significance of where I am today, even today. And no matter what your status is in life right now, it, this application can can come to you in a way that is personally remarkable. That, wow, I'm reading this and all this are reading that, and, and someone totally across the room may be getting some other significance for their life, but God is personally and directly speaking to me about where I am in my current station in life. It is amazing how the Bible has shown itself to be exactly what it says. Living and active and effective, piercing the very heart and souls of men. We need to ask, how does it apply? But the big question of faith is, is the question that comes, not only as we open it, but as we conclude in reading it, as we conclude in studying, what will I do about what is God saying? What will I trust about what God is saying? Will I trust it? And here as we get in, I want to provide to you some, some information. We've just read a little portion about how Jesus is this mediator of a new covenant. If he is the priest of a new tabernacle, as he is the sacrifice that takes away and atones for sin. And this is a theme that is over and over and over repeating. It is saturating the book of Hebrews. In fact, as this is the 15th message from the book of Hebrews, we're looking at it. You may think if you've been here, uh, uh, he was talking about this the last time I was here. Um, can we move on? What's the deal? But our goal as a church is to say, 
No, not just a small snippet and portion of the Bible is valuable, but all of it. And so as, as such, as such a belief and a conviction is held, we must teach all of it. And if the Bible emphatically shares abundantly about this priesthood and this mediator and this, this atonement and this tabernacle and this covenant, then we must take the time to carefully consider it. To see how it meets our desperate need. Think about whenever you became aware of your needs. Now, there was a time where you knew you had needs, but you couldn't think that you had needs. You were just crying out for them. You had a dirty diaper, someone needed to change it. You were hungry, someone needed to feed you. You were needing comfort, someone needed to pick you up. And some of you parents that are, have young, young children, you're like, yes, this awareness is very real about how much this child knows that it, it needs, and yet it cannot really openly express and say, Mother, Father, I am requesting the removal of this putrid garment. It can't tell you that. It can cry and let you know something's not right. But there became a place where there was an awareness of things that you needed. It was an awareness. Maybe one day you were swimming and, and you went underwater too long and you, you came to the awareness, I need air. Maybe there was a time where you were just out and just sweating and you're like, I am dying of thirst. I need water. It's good to have water. Maybe there was a time where you were desperately starving. Not like, you know, like I kind of joke, you know, never eat on an empty stomach. Uh, but, but really, you were really starving. And you said, oh, I just desperately need food. Some of you in this room, you've experienced going days without food. Maybe there's that time when it got cold and you're like, oh, clothing is a good thing. When the storms of life came, Literal storms. Like last night I was talking about just this weird moment where just the ice started dropping and then it went away and it was beautiful. Did you realize shelter's a good thing? Those are the basic needs that, that all humans have. Air, water, food, clothing, shelter. We, we have an awareness that we need this. But there's also an awareness of, of, of deeper needs that humans have Beyond any other creature, we have a need to understand who we are, our identity. Where, what was our origin story? What's our meaning? We have a need for community, that we're relational beings, and, and we have to know that we're loved by someone and we're welcomed somewhere and, and isolated just as just dysfunctional for us. We have a need for security, that there's something to be trusted, and that there's some way that, that if I do this, it's a good chance, it's a good... I don't want to use the word chance. It's a bad word in, in a Baptist church, right? There's a good, well laid out formula that if I do this, my needs will be provided for. If I work, I should get paid. If I get paid, I can buy food. Those kind of things. We need that. It's, it's something innate in us that there's a need for identity and community and security. And this is where some of the beauty of the redemptive work of God comes into play. And this is where the book of Hebrews is kind of laying out the case of what God has been doing, not only to provide for mankind's basic needs and to show them what it means to grow and, and be effective and produce, but also how to meet those deep, desperate human needs. First of all, God shows that 
He created us. You know, that's a big human need. Because without God creating us, guess what? There ain't no human need. There's just not. And I know in this room there could be differences of opinions about how man's origin derives from the scene. Uh, we are convictionally believers that, that God created man fully as He was in His image. That there is something unique about man that is different from any other creature that exists. And if you are of the opinion, I'm not going to you know, make you feel bad if you are of the opinion that things just kind of naturally evolve, but if you really do the research and look at the intricacy and I'll just even parse it out. Just look at the intricacy of the human eye. You know, no camera at this point is advanced enough to capture the, the, the amazing ability of the human eye. That anywhere you turn, it just automatically can focus. And in any moment, second, it's like that. It cleans itself. It helps repair itself. It's amazing. I'll move on. One of the ways God provided for humanity is He created us in the first place. And just think about that. God, the all-knowing God, who sees everything, created mankind who was destined to rebel against Him. That's a pretty loving God to do that. To know that I can willingly choose to create or not create someone who I know will utterly rebel against me. And I choose to do it. Secondly, God preserved humanity. When mankind was utterly, utterly, desperately sinful, He redeemed humanity through a family of Noah. He adopted a people through a stranger, a wanderer, a drifter named Abraham. He rescued a people when they were enslaved by Moses. He guided this people, Israel, through His presence. He shared with Him His plans. He gave them His laws. He foretold His promises. God was about meeting the needs and helping them understand Him so that man might have a right and righteous relationship with their Creator, their Redeemer. That, that these needs for their identity and their community and their security, all of these things would be fulfilled in Him who made us, who loved us, who saves us. That we would know the, the One who is omnipresent, always there. This book of Psalms puts it this way in Psalm 139. It says that there is nowhere we could ever go that we could ever flee from God's presence. Nowhere. The highest of mountains, the farthest east, the farthest west, the lowest depths, even death itself. You can never flee from God. He's omnipresent. That we would know God's dwelling presence. That God is not only omnipresent, but God chooses to abide near us. You ever had somebody that you just like, you just can't abide? I just can't wait till I am no longer in the same domain as this person. Because of who they are, because of the words they say, because of the beliefs they hold. We make lists. I'm, I'm not trying to pretend, pretend to be presumptuous. We all have those people. We do. And if we're honest, we'll be like, yeah, we do. And yet God says, I choose to abide and dwell with all. I choose not only to be omnipresent because I'm God, I choose to dwell close to them. And not only would God show us His dwelling presence, but He would show us His revealed presence. That, that this God who is there, He wouldn't be like, yeah, I'm this invisible person that's next to you, but you'll never know. No, He says, I want you to know who I am. And that's what He was doing in the people of Israel. 
So now we get to the matters presented by the writer of Hebrews to those who lived in these uncertain times. And he's saying among the readers that listened to this letter, there were those that were followers of Jesus Christ in true faith. They knew who the Savior was. They had placed their faith in his life. And by the way, there is two differences there. It's one thing to say, I know about this Jesus. I know what I'm supposed to believe. And there's another thing of believing it and following it. But there were those who knew and followed Jesus in true faith. And among the readers and listeners, there were also those who were witnesses of the true faith themselves, but they were not united with Christ in true faith themselves. And the Bible paints the picture that this, this is something that's not just a foreign idea. This is something that's very prevalent. Even in what you would say is very devout, holy, well-behaved churches. Our, our students went to the Youth Evangelism Conference this weekend, and the speaker even made this known. He said, you know, if we say, oh, that's, that's just a little small, select few that this could happen to, he says, we're actually going against the words of Jesus. Because Jesus Himself says, wide is the way that leads to destruction, and many travel by it. Narrow is the way that leads to life, and only a few find it. And then we look at the book of Hebrews, we say even in places of faith, there can be those, and we've used this illustration, I've used this illustration, of like Sam's Club samplers. Man, they love enjoying the benefits and, and being there, but they're not taking it home. It's not genuine faith. And to the groups of peoples, there was conflict for both. There's conflict for both. And what the writer's saying, he says, I want you to understand what you fully have in the fullness of Jesus. I want you to really understand what it means to have completeness in Him. And how that meets such a desperate, desperate need. That in Jesus you have one who is superior, who is sufficient, and we don't say enough about that word, and who is Savior. With Jesus, the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says the Word of God Himself speaks. With Jesus, you see the angels submit. With Jesus, you see Moses is surpassed. With Jesus, you see the high priest is forever steadfast. With Jesus, you see the new covenant is satisfied. And with Jesus, you see a servant of the superior and sufficient tabernacle. So we need to get it in our idea, in our heads, not only just a head knowledge, but a faith walking following that with Jesus... Plus nothing else, I have everything. I have the fullness of what God intended. I have the completion of what God meant. I have the the one who is the perfect mediator and sacrificing Savior. With Jesus and what Jesus did through the cross for us in overcoming the grave, the place of Jesus' offering is much better than I could ever give. Much better than anyone could ever give on my behalf. Jesus supersedes. With the price that Jesus offered, it was far better. It was far better. Imagine if you will. I'm on the greatest task. What must I do to have fullness and be at peace and have my my deepest needs met? What would you give? What, What price would you pay for that? I mean, just every need possible. What price would you be willing to pay? 10%? 
20% of your life? Time, treasure, talent? 50%. Oh, we're getting big now, right? What if you said, you know what, I'll go all in. Just put them all in. I'll go 100%. That offering is a pittance. A pittance compared to what Jesus paid. If you gave 100% of every day, every item, every breath, it would still be in a miserable pittance comparison. And that is offensive to us. Because we think, oh, you know, I've got a lot to offer God. That's kind of what we feel. In fact, we, we kind of push back. I, I have a need for God? Yes, yes we do. That's why the priest offering of Christ is better what He did for us. You see, the, the Bible starts laying out this, this image, if you will, of this grandiose place and plan that God had provided for the people in the Old Testament. This place that was called the tabernacle and later built into a permanent place of the temple. And that last temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. A place where people could be looking at the adornment and the beauty of it and wowed. Even Jesus' disciples were like, wow, look at these stones. They're just looking at the rocks, the bricks, and they're like, isn't that cool? When was the last time you were like looking at a brick wall and be like, man, look at that brick. Isn't that amazing? That's how amazing this place was. And, and, and they're looking at it and Jesus supersedes that. And the writer of Hebrews, who's telling these people of true faith that in the middle of conflict, hold on to Jesus and know with Jesus you have more than you could ever possibly need because with Jesus you have fullness. You have completion. That these other things, these other ways, these other philosophies that are trying to fulfill that need will never be able to fully do it. Even as adorned and beauty as they are. The tabernacle would be inferior and insufficient. Why was it? Because one, it was an earthly dwelling. It would always be limited by an earthly geography. Wherever it was the fixed point. And not only was it earthly, it was made by man's hands. Yes, the plans came from God. But it was made by men. It was repaired by men. It was moved by men when it was the tent. And it was limited use for men. Only a few men could actually even go in. You had to have the right tribe, the right clan, the right name, the right position. It was only an earthly dwelling. Secondly, it was inferior because it was a lesser dwelling. It was only a shadow of that which was pictured in the heavenlies when Moses received it. What the writer of saying, saying of Hebrews is that it was only a shadow. Jesus is the priest that holds that forever position in a heavenly tabernacle, a heavenly temple that will never be removed, that will never be destroyed. You see, this lampstand, as bright as it was, that, that illuminated the place in this table and this holy place, guess what? That lampstand, it's, it's lesser because a man has to go put the oil in it so it never goes out. That table, it's lesser because a man has to go and provide the bread and make the right formula put the bread there. It, it is lesser because this holy place, even though it is a holy place, the box, it was made by a man's hand. The offering, it, it requires men to do it imperfect. It says this incense altar, people have to prepare the fragrance. All of these things are lesser. Because they're on our side and there's never any price that we could put together that would be sufficient enough. It was also a separated dwelling. 
Only certain people could ever enter into that very near presence with God. Now, it was designed that way because the holiness of God is a very serious matter. But we'll get to that in a moment. Imagine what it would be if someone stood there and they looked at you because you weren't of a certain bloodline, you weren't of a certain language, you weren't of a certain, you wasn't, weren't of a certain uh, skin color. You weren't of, a, weren't of a certain tribe. And they stood there and they just said, "You shall not pass. You just can't. Here, no more." What would that make you think about God? It was meant to remind you of the holiness of God. But what it prevented was people drawing near for the restoration by God Himself. And so all the activity that went on this ornate building that even the disciples of Jesus were impressed by, it was a very superficial dwelling. It could only cover a surface area. It was very symbolic, but it was something that was repeated. And during the Old Old Testament covenant era, here's the problem. As good as it was in what God was providing, it had no complete means for each person to enter to the very near presence of God. That was unheard of. It had no complete ability to resolve each person's awareness and condition of guilt. None. In other words, our need, the awareness of our need for righteous relationship is not complete. It's insufficient. It's inferior. So this is why the Bible makes clear this heavenly tabernacle that's superior. It's saying, first of all, because of what Jesus has done in this heavenly, always existing place, there is a greater and more perfect tabernacle that's in the heavenlies. It says that it is graciously provided a greater dwelling. That, and with Jesus, who has entered the most holy place for all time by His only by His own blood, He has obtained an eternal redemption for us. That, that this is not some temporary over having to do it over and over place made and kept by human hands, but Jesus entered into the perfect place as the perfect person with the perfect price for the perfect sufficient substitution. It's greater, immeasurably greater. And it says that because of Him, He's the mediator of a new covenant, a better covenant, that we might receive the promise of eternal, eternal inheritance. In other words, what Jesus did is greater than any priesthood, any sacrifice, any covenant that could be paid by man. It greatly, it graciously provides the costly dwelling. That we need to understand, when I ask you that question, what price would you pay? It says that what Jesus did is that He shed His own blood. Because the Bible makes it clear over and over, from beginning to the end, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This morning in, in, in our connection group, we talked about this, this imagery of the tabernacle and the old covenant. We, we kind of try to paint the picture, but I'll tell you one of the things that's really missing from those little Sunday school mission uh, picture posters, maybe you had the flannel graph back in the day. I'll tell you what was missing. The bloody, stinking, burning mess. It was utterly bloody everywhere why because sin is ugly sin costs life 
Sin costs the shedding of blood. And so when it talks about this price that was paid, this costly price, Jesus looked at humanity. And even before He came, He made this promise of of being the covenant maker. Because He saw there was no price that we could, if we even tried to pay, that would ever be measured enough for once and for all. But the price He would pay, the price that only God would have the pockets deep enough to pay, and He didn't pay it with gold or jewels or riches. He didn't buy His way out of it. He lovingly said, I will meet their needs by being the one in their place. I, God, will do this. That is why it is so costly. It graciously provides the fulfilled dwelling. It says that Christ did not enter a sanctuary that was made with hands, but into heaven itself so that He might now appear in the presence of God for us. That this heavenly place is full and fulfilled because of what Jesus has done. And it graciously provides the final dwelling. That this is something that was done once and for all. And one day at the end of all things, all people who are known by Jesus' name, who are in true faith, will be brought near to this place. I mean, that's a lot of imagery, Pastor. But I'm really losing track on how this meets my need. How this applies to my life. What is the central applications here for both of these, these, these testimonies? Here's the central applications. And I know this is not in your points on, uh, it may not even be on the screen. It is on the screen, actually. Uh, but it's not in your notes, so you'll have to add these in. Here's the first application. I want you to know that God desires people to approach Him. That's the teaching of this text. God Himself, the Holy of Holies, the Righteous of Righteous, the King of Kings, He desires people to approach Him. He lets people get in His personal space. That's huge! That God, having all power, having nothing and lacking nothing, says, I want them. I don't need them. I want them to be near me. I desire them. That is huge. And God was at work in the Old Testament for the means for His people to live in intimacy with Him. That's that whole imagery. He wanted them to be able to draw near. When the tabernacle was situated, all the tribes were situated equally around this this place. They couldn't come to the Holy of Holies, but they could be near Him. Here's the second application. God is particular about how people approach Him. God desires people to approach Him, yes, and God has been working for that, but God is particular about how people approach Him. God has in mind specific requirements for our drawing near. We don't get to make the rules. We don't get to adjust and say, well, this is how I want to do it. We don't. And unless we conceive of God as some petty deity, a small God, small puny person, maybe the Jesus in the bathrobe syndrome that, that He's kind of weak and He never laughs and He's never, he's never cool. Unless we look at Him as, as a petty deity who hands out these regulations on a whim, we must ask, why such detail? Why does God go into all of these details about approaching Him? What does this mean for me? What does this mean for our church? What does this mean for others outside these walls? If God desires them to approach them, but it must be in a particular way, what does it mean? 
It means that when we see that God desires us to approach Him, we come acknowledging His rules. We come acknowledging who He is. Anything less says we rebel against what you say and we do not believe who you are. That is disbelief. That is where our knowledge sometimes gets in the way. Because we think, oh, I got all these rights and these things. And we try to insert ourselves in our will. As if it would make sense. Charles Spurgeon once gave this imagery of this. He says, suppose you take a fish out of water. What happens? It begins to die. But suppose that somehow it were capable of living. It probably would not be a life very suitable for the fish. Because the fish is guided by rules in a place it should live. And it must be placed in the water to get there. The same is true for our life. We, if we try by our own means, what a horrible and utter existence that will be. But abiding by God, there is flourishing of life. God is particular about how people approach Him. And here's the last central point. God is always holy. God is always holy. And God is sharing with His people about His holiness and goodness and righteousness, which will also reveal, if we're honest, our sinfulness that rebels against Him. It reveals our need that if God is holy and we need a right relationship for Him to have that identity and that community and that security, we have to get over the fact and something has to be done about our sinfulness. And God has not changed. He has not changed. He is the same forever and ever. The same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And not only has God not changed, people have never been able to throw off their sinfulness. We just not. Yeah, we can bathe. Yeah, we can wash our clothes. Yeah, we can upgrade and... Do all the things we want, but that's one thing we can never do of our own power. And the picture revealed here is what God provided in the past to rescue and redeem His children. This restoration calls us in movement towards God who desires us to approach Him. It shows a movement where His redeemed children can come to Him in the way He lovingly prescribed so that they may celebrate His presence You know that's what we were meant to do when we worship. We're not meant to come and say, all right, I'm here. Hey God, glad you're here too. It's like, wow, I'm here! And God wants me here? That ain't right, but I'm glad He does. I don't belong in this picture. I'm like that book of highlights magazine. What's wrong? What's, What's not right here? that we may live in awe of His majestic holiness. Worship is living in awe. Wow, God, this is who You are and and You love me? You see, our greatest need is for both holiness from God and wholeness with God. And only God can make this possible. This is why. So that man might have a right and righteous relationship with their Creator that Jesus comes. And he says, I will be the one to show you the way to have peace with God. That's what a mediator is, once and for all. Not only will I show you the way as the mediator, I will be the sacrifice once and for all. That's the price. 
And not only will I be the price, I'll be the Savior. I'll be the one that walks with you, that rescues you, that redeems you. And one day I will return for you. So that we too might know the one who is omnipresent, who is ever with us, sees every detail of our life, and that should scare the bejesus out of us. It should. Nothing is hidden from him. The one who is the dwelling presence who says, I draw near to me, and the one who's the revealed presence. So today, I have to ask you this question. Have you come to the place where you not only know what you're supposed to know about Jesus, but you recognize He is the only source of peace and completion and fullness. And without Him, you have no mediator. Without Him, you have no sacrifice. Without Him, you have no Savior. And if you come to a place where I need to move beyond just knowledge of knowing these right things about God to saying, here is my life, Jesus. I place it in your hands to hold, to keep, to preserve forever because you are the immeasurable price. And I want to continue with my life worshiping out of the one who gave me everything. That if I had all the world and I didn't have Jesus, I would still have nothing. But if I have Jesus and I have nothing else, I still get everything. Is that where you are? Wherever you find yourself today in that moment with that question, respond to Jesus with what you need to do based off that question. For some in this room, it might mean I have gone my whole life with all this knowledge and everything, but I, I, if I'm really honest, I have never placed my faith in Jesus. And I need to do that. I need to move beyond just, yeah, I know the right things, and I go to the right church, and I sing the right songs, and I give the right offering, and all this thing, to I give my life to Jesus, who is my everything. And for some in this room, it might mean Jesus is calling you to that next level, and you need to recognize it's Jesus, you're everything that's calling you. Why are you holding that? Let's respond based on that. Lord Jesus, You said that You are the way and the truth and the life. And as we see today, You are by far the sufficient and superior way. There was no other beside You. And You've made this known so that we would know the truth. And You've brought this so that we would have life. And without You, we have nothing, God. We may look and be fooled and think we have everything, but we have nothing. And it's so easy to sometimes pretend and be distracted by this world and pretend that everything else is worth our time more than You, Jesus. But today I pray that You would call Your church to a sense of urgency, to a place that recognizes once again Lord, without You, we would be empty. Without You, there is no identity. Without You, our needs go wanting. But because of You, there is fullness. I can be right and righteous with God. I can be holy and made whole. Lord, have Your way in this time. Please, Lord. Have Your way. 
Move us in the way that You see fit. And Lord, today, I pray that Your church, if they hear Your voice, they would not harden their heart. In Jesus' name, Amen.